Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan DiVincesco. I am the deputy editor of Cellside Technology. I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Anthony Maliki, and the U.S. editor of Waters Technology. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we are at the midpoint of the month, which, for those of you that don't know how publications work. For us, this is kind of the midpoint of our features. We've spoken to a handful of people. We still probably want to tap into a few more sources uh, to hear their takes. So we thought it'd be a good idea if Anthony and I both discussed the features that we're working on, maybe some stuff we've already come up with, and some questions that are still uh, left unanswered for us that we'd like answers with. And as always, we'd love your feedback. So to start uh, Anthony's going to talk about the kind of consolidation of uh, risk platforms and risk firms on the buy side. So I'll let Anthony uh, take it away. Sure, Dan. Um, so the feature is going to kind of the one thing. I guess this is something that I find more interesting than anything else. And you know, I'm working on a couple stories because in case this one people tell me there's nothing there, then fine, fair enough. But over the last just few months, we've seen a couple big mergers that involve. Um, Buy side focused vendors um, focusing in on risk analytics providers and trying to build out their their skill set, their suite of solutions when it comes to buy side focused risk services. Um, you know, four I guess that we can you know just quickly just touch on are um, you know you have uh, Bloomberg and Barclays Point. Um, uh, that was bought in uh, 2015. So I'm um, sorry, Bloomberg acquired Barclays Risk Analytics and Index Solutions, uh, Braze, um, which includes Point. Um, Point is going to actually be folded into um, Bloomberg, Bloomberg's Port Solution. Uh, but Barclays has agreed to continue to operate Point for 18 months post-completion in order to help clients transition to Port. Uh, you had... So that happened in December 2015. You had StatPro by Investor Analytics, as we've talked here before. That was in January. Uh, you know, good you know symmetry there. Um, both are risk analytics providers, but um, one's Europe-based, one's you know New York-based. Um, and you have Investor Analytics, which runs Monte Carlo simulations and variance, covariance, risk and factor modeling. Um, those calculations will now be able to run alongside StatPro's historical simulation risk model and portfolio pricing capabilities. You know, while both offer stress testing, uh, StatPro does it through simulation. Investor Analytics does it through uh, repricing capabilities and factor modeling capabilities. So, there's, you know, there's a good symmetry there. You had uh, in February, you had uh, BISAM uh, poach FinAnalytica. Uh, while BISAM does offer, you know, some sort of risk analytics, um, th it wasn't nearly as robust as they needed it to be, as clients had wanted it to be. Um, they had established themselves as a performance attribution uh, uh, solutions provider, FinAnalytica, hardcore into the buy side risk space, focusing more on uh, fat tail uh, models, stuff like that. Um, and then you had just recently uh, this week, uh, Axioma uh, bought Concept One, uh, announced that they had bought Concept One. And for them, Axioma had front and middle office risk covered. Uh, Concept One is a straight up back office uh, risk provider. Um, and they have uh, regulatory reporting, com compliance reporting, anything that has to do with uh, firm. Uh, firms providing reports uh, to the regulators. 
this is all to say that, you know, there's a lot of movement. They all have their special niche plays. So they're not necessarily direct competitors in some ways. They are, but it's just interesting to see that there's so much movement right now amongst firms consolidating, coming together um, specifically for the buy side, specifically as it relates to certain risk processes. So that's going to be the focus. Well, so what I find interesting is that I understand why a lot of these are coming together. We talked about Investor Analytics and StatPro coming together because they kind of both do two separate things. And by coming together, it makes sense, you know, strength and numbers. But, you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast. Analytics is such a growing space. More and more firms want better analytics. You know, we've kind of ridden the wave of big, big data and kind of getting those platforms in place. And now it's taking all this data that they have and actually doing something with it. So what I find interesting is you look at another space and I feel like I'm always making this comparison. I'm always bringing up blockchain, but you look at blockchain, seems like there's more and more firms popping up everywhere with blockchain because it's this new exciting thing. Everyone wants to get on it. Whereas in the analytics specific to the buy side with this, with these risk analytics, more firms are consolidating and coming together. So it's kind of the numbers are almost shrinking and they're just growing into these bigger conglomerates. Is that surprising at all? Is, is, does that thought process, I don't know. I mean, you've done a little bit more than me. Maybe this is a question for our listeners. Does that thought process make sense that it's a little surprising that instead of having more people get into the space because it's such a want that instead the ones that are in the space are kind of coming together and trying to grow strength in numbers? Well, I think that what you would really see is that there are plenty of newbies that are entering into the market. So that's still happening. What's interesting here is that these are pretty well-established firms, you know, like uh, Investor Analytics, they only have like 35, 50 clients somewhere now. I'm I'm not sure what the exact number is. Fan Analytica, similar, you know, small uh, numbers, uh, Concept One, um, not a huge uh, company there. It's about a bigger company trying to gain an expertise and the choice comes down to, do I want to build this in-house? You know, do I want to really kind of just put forth that investment, go hire the proper developers for this, or is it just simpler to grow out our solution suite um, by going out and poaching somebody who has established themselves that that have a little bit of name recognition, that have some respect, um, respectability behind them? So I think that's what's happening. I think that you're going to still see plenty of firms that are going to pop up in the risk analytics space. This is just going to be hot uh, area. Um but what does this mean as far as, you know, you always have these kind of things where there's an expansion, there's a bunch of firms that enter in, and then there's a period of consolidation. So right now we're, of the established firms, we're going through a consolidation phase. So sure, there'll be some startups that will come in. What are the main concerns that hedge funds, you know, asset managers, pension funds, what are they worried about when they when they see this happen? Where has it gone wrong in the past? I guess that that's what I'm going to try and figure out. I don't have an answer to that right now. I'd be interested to hear from our listeners uh, what they think. But you know, that's that's how it's going to play out. Is where has it gone wrong in the past, and or is this consolidation? Is it always good? Is it to be expected that you know you want these newbies to come in, start up, establish themselves, and then will always be just a natural that a bigger firm will come in? It's 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 interesting because I'm kind of of the mindset. I think that you know you you bring together these mergers. There's always going to be some 
friendly fire. You're going to lose people either whether it's going to be some of your own employees or whether it's going to be some of the some of your clients because for whatever reason, I, I don't know. I think that if I was in the mindset, if, if I feel like this space is growing and there's a need for that, why not try to poach somebody? Why not try to grow it out in-house as opposed to trying to acquire something that's already established and then maybe not having it work out? You know, I guess a, a not to help my point, but you look at the Advent SS and C. That seems to have worked well. But when we first spoke to people back in February of 2015, there were some concerns about what's going to happen. How is this going to change? Because it's such a respected, um, such a respected platform. I don't know. I, I, you know, I had a meeting last week with some uh, human resources person, and they mentioned how she specifically goes after firms that are being integrated with another firm. Whenever there's a merger and acquisition, if she's trying to poach somebody, that's when she goes in because she knows there's a lot of unsettling. So I feel like you are kind of opening yourself up to a bit of disaster. But then I guess on the other hand, you could say, well, if you try to build something out and it fails, then you're wasting a lot of money. So I, what do, I guess, I don't know, did you have anything to add to that, Anthony? Well, I would just say that, you know, even with SSC and Advent this week also, you saw um, Salient Partners, a small $12 billion asset manager in Houston. Um, they're- Hold on, can I... Can I- it always cracks me up when we call twelve billion. I, I get it. I understand. It's all you know scale, but it always just cracks. Small twelve billion dollar. I wouldn't mind taking one of that billion. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, yeah, give me one of those billions. I'll take it. So I think though, but you just seen that they become one of the first firms that have. They had a bunch of. Uh, they had APX and Advent Geneva uh, running on their systems, um, and they had they themselves salient had gone through a merger and so they were consolidating systems underneath the one SSNC advent offering now so they're one of the first ones to do it but even then there's a small little fella you know is it real you know it's time's going to tell whether or not that merger is really as smooth as they're going to want it to be yeah so now shifting gears to my feature for april is focusing on open source software so Kind of, I'll give the quick 10,000 foot view is that what I've, you know, this started a while ago when we were out in uh, Chicago, actually, for the Chicago Trading Summit, Trading Architecture Summit. I always get all the names confused of our conferences. That's great marketing on my part. But we were out in Chicago for a conference, and I heard a couple of people speak about using R and using open source and the programming language R and, and whatnot. And it kind of it piqued my interest. And then I kind of chased it for a little bit, had some cover stories, weren't able, but I've done a little bit more of a deep dive now. I've spoken to some people on the buy side, some people on the sell side. Seems, and again, this is kind of a natural selection. The people that are willing to speak about it are going to be people that support it, but seems to be very pro. I mean, I had one very high executive at a buy side firm essentially say to me that there are no cons to open source. There's only upside as long as you execute it properly. The biggest thing that I've come across is that you have to pick your communities. You have to be very selective in picking your communities uh, in terms of making sure that it's very active, that there are a lot of people involved, that they're contributing a lot. It also helps if it's backed by a vendor, whether it's, you know, I know MIT is not a vendor, but MIT is involved in some programs. There's obviously Google, uh, you know, Apache. So that's a that's a very important thing. But I'm, I'm interested to see if there are any cons. I'm not trying to write a hit piece on open source. I think it, you know, for the most part, I think it sounds pretty, pretty great. And I know a big thing too is young uh, programmers that really enjoy using it. So it's kind of even been used as a recruiting tool, I've been told by some people. But I am interested to hear if there are any downsides to open source. Uh, you know, when whenever you hear and 
Anthony, you can kind of speak to this. Whenever a bunch of people are telling you one thing, you always kind of get sick of it and you kind of want to hear the other side of the story. And I really haven't heard that. Uh, Anthony, I know that you worked on a story on Python, an open source programming language, uh, back in the summer uh, that, you know, it's its uses within the financial services. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that or what kind of your experiences with uh, open source. Yeah, um, what I would say is that when I was going through and writing about Python um, as a scripting language, um, basically the underlying trend was that, you know, since uh, the financial crisis, Wall Street firms that they're investing. So this goes back to our analytics, that they're investing more in analytics and research tools um, while at the same time trying to be able to handle these massive data sets. Um, and as a result, uh you know, banks, asset managers, hedge funds, that they're becoming more comfortable with open source tools to handle this. Um, and then Python being uh, one that has really jumped out. But as you mentioned, there's also R and MATLAB. I guess that would be what would be interesting to hear is, you know, there are, there are drawbacks. I remember with Python, um, the biggest drawback uh, came that there's just low late for low latency trading system where latency was concerned you wouldn't really want to go down the python route um speaking with craig austin at aqr um they said that their front office research team is 100 percent python but it's still c plus plus um uh java uh, c sharp and scala um, that are using it for the actual trading systems themselves so i guess you know what is that blend where where are firms now today more comfortable using open source versus just even two three years ago what advancements have been made you know i think that that's kind of the interesting route to go down maybe what have you heard about that yeah i spoke to one uh, executive uh on the buy side that basically said he broke it down into two sets there was the enterprise-wide solutions and applications and whatnot that uh, use open source. And then there's kind of the other application, smaller applications that they're a little more flexible with. On the end, anything that's enterprise-wide, that's kind of part of the backbone, they want that backed vendor. They want that big name backing the open source project. They're not going to just dive in with, you know, Dave's open source project. Uh, the other ones, the applications, they're a little bit more flexible with, not that they would dive in with a small, um, you know, community, but they would be a little bit more flexible in, in who they pick and, and who they choose. And that kind of gets back to another point that I've kind of touched on um, doing research and that I'm interested in is also this license, the whole licensing around it. Uh, Obviously, different open sources have different licenses. Some are very uh, flexible with corporate, you know, in terms of free to use. Others aren't so much. It's if you use this open source, in turn, whatever you create with this open source also has to be open source, which obviously a, a banking financial firm isn't going to be too happy to do. Uh, the, also, the other way around, uh, in terms of if a bank or a hedge fund or an asset manager opens up their library for open source, them accepting contributions. That's been a big problem, I've heard, because of essentially you're opening yourself up to be sued. And you know, it's one thing if a little guy puts something out on open source on GitHub, no one's really going to go after them. But if Goldman Sachs you know, opens up their library, and that was an example used to me by one person, they can be sued. So they actually have to go through a third party uh, the name is escaping right now, but they have to go through a third party that they donate their library to that then can accept, accept contributions. So it's very convoluted. And the big thing is that there's no legal precedent for this. So no one wants to be the first one to tip their toe, toes in the water, not knowing what's going to happen. So that's going to be a big thing going think, forward. You know, you look at it too, though, you know, the, the other thing I think will be interesting is with the Sergei Lenikov, you know, trial and how hard the government came after him, how hard Goldman Sachs came after him. 
um, you know, does that scare some, you know, developers that want to work on certain things? You know, I mean, how much does that play into it? Because I, there is, like I, I said, there isn't a legal precedent set yet. I think that at the end of the day, open source is still popular. I mean, one, I had one executive tell me that they take about three trips a year out to, uh, um, out to Silicon Valley and speaking with VCs, one VC flat out said, there is no innovation that's taking place at strictly commercialized vendors. It's all happening in open source. Open, open source is the lifeblood of innovation. That's where it's all going down. So, uh, I think for all, maybe the red flags are still out there. It's still, right now really turning into the only game in town and uh and there's a lot of interest in using open source so the future will be interesting um but that's what i'm working on now so any feedback you have for me uh, you know drop me a line we'll include both uh anthony and i uh, our email addresses and our twitter accounts in the post and would love to hear from you guys uh switching gears now to something a little bit more pop culture uh sports related for those of you that missed it connor mcgregor the uh, outspoken, brash Irishman uh, lost to Nate Diaz. It was his third, I think it was his third career loss, his first in the UFC. He uh, lost in via submission in the second round. And also Holly Holm, who most of you will know as the woman that beat Ronda Rousey. Uh, she was uh, lost in submission to Misha Tate, who was lost to Ronda Rousey twice in the fifth round. Um, not only did she lose in submission, she was choked out and didn't even tap. The last thing she was doing was wildly throwing punches in one of the funniest videos you will ever see. Um, but I, actually, I have a point on that later. I'll get back to that. But first, Anthony is our resident fight guy, big boxing guy, big wrestling guy, big MMA guy, knows a lot about the entire sport. What are your thoughts on the two biggest stars the UFC has and correct me if I'm wrong, probably had in the sport, maybe ever, maybe since Brock Lesnar for the men, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on both of them going down in the same night? Well, yeah, well, they didn't go down the same night, so Holly Holm, yeah, no, no, no problem. All right, yeah, they, yeah you're, you're right, I've messed that up. But going down within, what, six months of each other? Um, I would say that, obviously, it's a bad night if you, you know, you look at it for UFC, you know, so UFC 196, it's not good for them, and in any way, you need star power. Star power is always the um, always preferred, in especially in fight sports. Um, but it's not really a, a, a death sentence. What people in the mainstream media don't understand is this isn't boxing, and it still gets compared so much to boxing. In the UFC, the best fight the best. You don't get an easy, you know, here's a, here's just a scrub fighter that we're going to give you. You are going to fight the number one ranked person. You know, that's just the way it is if you're a champion. Now, Nate Diaz was not near the number one ranked person. He had 10 losses on his ledger, but he had 20 wins, and he had fought every legitimate, you know, lightweight that there's been. He's had some wins. He's had some losses. Tough kid, naturally big, tall, lanky guy that was uh, sucking down the lightweight. For this fight, they moved up to 170 pounds. Conor McGregor is the champion at 145 pounds. It's a huge jump up. Well, is it though? It is. Because really I mean, is. all right, I've heard reports that his walking around weight is like one. So basically, it just comes down to him not having to cut weight. Let, and let me cut, and let, as somebody, wait, let me cut. Right, yes. Right, okay. Exactly. That's what I. That, and that's what I love. People are like, ah, yeah, it's what he walks around as. Yeah, so that means that he was walking into that cage at what his normal walk around weight is, which also means that he was not getting into the physical shape, the cardiovascular shape that he would be if you get down to 145. 
I, I don't think that's a fair assessment because you know for sure, and you know how it is with cutting weight. We both wrestled. You know that what you weigh in and win at, what you weigh in at, and what you fight at are two also completely different things. Because those guys aren't drinking water. There, you, you know, I've heard stories of guys within twelve hours losing twenty pounds because of you know sitting in a sauna, sitting in a suit, not drinking for you know for however time. You can lose all that weight. You hit your weight, and then when you step in the ring, you balloon back up. So I, I don't know necessarily if the whole like he fought so above his weight class. I don't and know how if, fair if that, that is. that was correct, then you would see more people fighting at their natural weight and having success. BJ Penn was a classic example. BJ Penn was an unstoppable machine at lightweight. He hated cutting down to lightweight and would always go up to welterweight, and he was just at moderate success at welterweight. It's the lower you can get, the more power you have, the bigger, the more physical you are, and you're absolutely right. When you put on that extra 15, 20 pounds the next day, you're going to be that much bigger than the guy next to you. That helps you. Arturo Gatti, I remember one time, knocked out Joey Gamash. He outweighed him by about 20 pounds by the night of the fight. All very good, but Diaz also only had, what, 12 days of camp to prepare for the fight? So I, I think you have to throw out all, all, all of that in terms of... I think you're absolutely wrong. <laughs> it's you know, you, You've never seen anybody go up two, two weight classes the way that he did, and he's failed at it. It hasn't happened. If it was easy to do, more people would do it. You'd rather fight at a bigger weight. There's more money when you I'm fight not, at a bigger weight. I'm not saying it's easy to do. I think they both were at an equal disadvantage. Nate Diaz has fought almost, I, I would bet almost all of his 30 fights have been between 155 and 170. This was Conor McGregor's first fight going up above one. I'm not saying his disadvantage was fighting at the weight class. I'm saying his disadvantage was the fact that he had 12 days to prep for this fight. And and that's fair enough. Um, but you saw, you know, it's the the punch came in, hit him. McGregor was doing great in the first round. It shows you the talent that McGregor has. Again, everybody's going to freak out that he lost. And he lost some of that star appeal because you want to have the Mike Tyson monster. That's what UFC keeps on trying to build is in the Russian. It was like with um, Ronda Rousey to call her the, the greatest, most transcendent, you know, fighter since Tyson and stuff like that. It was ridiculous. You know, she hadn't fought really good competition. Holly Holm was the first, you know, it was a true, was a champion boxer um, that was moving in and she got knocked out. I think that. With Conor McGregor, he can easily go back down now to 145, assuming he can make that weight, and he'll be fine, but some of that luster is going to be gone. Um, but the UFC will big up bigger, will will get another huge star in there. They had Brock Lesnar before that. Before that, there was Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture. You know, Before that, you had Matt Hughes. The sport is grown. And Shamrock. Ken Shamrock way back in the day and Hoist Gracie, of course. Yeah. Don't, don't make fun of Ken Shamrock. He was a I love, monster I, I, back in the day. I, I love Ken Shamrock. The amount of times when I was a kid joking around wrestling with my dad, ride throwing the ankle lock. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm more of a Ken Shamrock WWE guy, WWF guy, but I am a big fan of Ken Shamrock. That guy is crazy. But let me ask you this. I think everyone talks about the McGregor going down and how big that is. First of all, I, I think long term, this is fine for the UFC. I think... Two of your biggest stars take it. I think one of your biggest stars takes a hit. But I think at the end of the day, this is just going to be the nature of USC. U U UFC. You're not going to see the. And this has been said before. I'm not the first one to say that. You're not going to see these boxers that are going to go like boxers that go 30 no. It's just the nature of the sport that if you get a not. A, I don't want to say lucky because nothing's lucky. But if you get a good punch in or one guy makes one mistake and chokes you out, 
that's it. It's it's game over, and that doesn't necessarily happen as much in boxing. I think the bigger misstep is Holly Holm because you miss out on what would have been I the big definitely I think the biggest pay per view in the history of UFC, which would have been UFC 200, which would have been Holly Holm versus Ronda Rousey. So now that match is completely lost luster because Ronda Rousey's beaten Misha Tate twice. What do you do? Do you, do you agree with that, or do you think that's off base? For a one-term purchase, sure, that hurt. All right. For the women's division, women's division is different than men. The women's division has always Dana White never really wanted a women's division in the UFC, right. but mm-hmm. because you know they they basically just created this for Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey, you know, by Holly Holm losing, I I really do believe this is better for the sport in the long run. Misha Tate is you know, an exceptionally good fighter. She it helps that she's absolutely beautiful. Um, and she's very marketable. She's good in front of a camera. So now she's already lost twice to Ronda Rousey. But now she's a champion. Now you kind of create this this, you know, kind triangle. of trial. Yeah, where you have everybody fighting each other. I would actually say that what the UFC should do next is have home fight uh Rousey next. Okay, solve that. Whoever wins that, you have Misha Tate in another high-profile fight defending her championship belt. Winner of those two fight fight each other, and then you have you know the winner. You know you just kind of keep on bouncing around. They need to create more names other than just Ronda Rousey, Holly Holm. If you're a real sports fan, if you really follow UFC, you knew what her name was. Otherwise, she was uh, that's well, that's the woman that on. beat Ronda Rousey. Oh, hold on. Let's. You're, real sports fans, before the Ronda Rousey fights, you're saying real sports fans knew who Holly Holm was. No, 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 no. I'm saying after the knockout, they knew who they oh, knew yes. her name. But okay. I'm, what I'm saying is she has no name recognition except for the, the biggest sports fans. And even the biggest sports fans, you really have to be a big UFC fan to know who Holly Holm was after knockout. Even though she was all over ESPN. It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's the one that knocked out. Uh, that's the one that knocked out Ronda Rousey. They have to create more names. So if they're going to keep the women's division intact, and that this wasn't just the Ronda Rousey thing, and now now she's gone, let's do away with it and slowly slide it out the door. This is a good thing, I think, in the long term. Yes, you lost some pay-per-view buys, maybe you know on uh, the if if uh, home would have won in the home Rousey rematch, but in the long term, I think that this is going to be good for the sport. Yeah, I you're probably right. I just think that, and this is I think the way the uh, I don't know if people are interested in a whole like triangle, you know, and this can sound, this might sound sexist, but this, I think this is, I think the people like how there was just one champion and they were really looking forward to that big person and kind of her being a wrecking ball and how quick she can knock people out. So then to turn around now kind of have, it's definitely more dynamic. There's more parody. I don't know necessarily if that's going to draw in more fight fans. I'm sure the purest fight fans will enjoy it, but for the normal people that are going to pick up and buy a pay-per-view, I think the best case scenario for Dana White would have been the home uh, Rousey rematch, preferably Rousey wins, and then you have the rubber match, the third match, you know, which would have done even better buys. Uh, but that was the better, I, th- I think that was the better fight between Tate and uh, and home, as opposed to McGregor and, uh, and uh, uh, Diaz. I mean, they were kind of, McGregor and Diaz were just 
trading blows essentially diaz from what i've been told has just like an iron jaw and just can't be knocked out so he kind of just ate him and i think kind of to your point the fact that uh you know mcgregor was fighting at a lower weight probably didn't have the power where a lot of those punches that he hit diaz with would have knocked out a you know a, a heavier guy um and, you know, that was all good. But, I mean, Holm literally goes down swinging. You say the phrase, go down swinging. She went down swinging. I, don't th- I honestly think that her brain was shutting off and she was trying to tap and her arms were moving. But she had no idea what was, as the blood flow was being cut off from her brain, that that was her trying to go for a tap. That's honestly what I think was happening there. She was going for the tap and it just came out as this spastic, you know, punching motion that uh, did look like she was trying to punch at something that wasn't in front of her. One one more question for you. We're running a little bit long, and if you don't know this, but one thing, see, I'm like I said, I'm a big wrestling guy, right? WrestleMania coming up less than a month away. Can't wait. Real excited. Uh, I'm a big wrestling guy. What are your thoughts on CM Punk? Uh, former, you know, very famous, very popular WWE WWF wrestler. Uh, pretty much famously broke away from the company a couple years ago. Had nothing but not nice things to say pretty much about Vince McMahon and how things were handled was in a lawsuit over a concussion um very polarizing figure I think is fair to call CM Punk uh, is supposed to fight um was supposed to fight I think maybe at this past UFC or an upcoming UFC and then had delays or has has had delays for a while had just had recently had a wrist injury what are your thoughts on CM I mean I think he's like 35 34 he's not a young man what are your thoughts on what his success could potentially be in the UFC or do you think it's this is just Dana White taking a big name and trying to run with it it's exactly what it is and it's honestly we'll see if he ever does get inside the octagon i i have my doubts that that will ever happen you gotta remember brock lesnar was a, a tremendous uh collegiate wrestler um at minnesota and at uh, was it north dakota or north dakota state yeah, um, it was so yeah he won a championship there and then went to minnesota and won the heavyweight championship there and you saw him even in wwe he's an athletic freak cm punk doesn't have that pedigree um, and also he's fighting at a lighter weight, you know, the, the, the skill levels at the lighter weights tend to be better than at heavyweight, whereas heavyweight, you know, you rely on that one big punch on your size, your mass, the athletic ability doesn't necessarily translate. That's what made Lesnar so unique. That's what made Cain Velasquez so unique was their athletic ability. Um, yeah, I, I don't think CM Punk ever entered. If, if you had to ask me, I don't think he is ever going to have a fight in the UFC. He'll ever have a fight. I wouldn't, I would not be shocked. And if he does, it'll be against a scrub. He'll win that one against 35. You know, what, what are we doing? You don't see fighters at this weight and at, at that weight going and making a career. So maybe there's one or two fights. If you had to ask me, I think this all peters out. Really? Do you think he makes a turn back to WWE? I think everybody, uh, yeah, eventually, you know, you want to make that money. It's so, you know, they said Bruno San Martino did it. Hulk Hogan did it. Everybody. Lesnar did it. At the end of the day, Lesnar did it at the end of the day. But, you know, at the end of the day, they all come back. Doesn't matter how bad a relationship they have. VKM, Vincent K. McMahon, always finds a way to get them back. All right. Well, we're at 30 minutes now. That seems about good. Uh, uh, Well, yeah, that seems about good. Uh, So next week you have a treat since Anthony. Well, here's a quick plug for Anthony. Anthony will be down in Boca. Uh, from when will you be down there, Tony? Uh, get down there. Well, I'll be there mainly Wednesday, Thursday. Get down there Tuesday, uh, mid afternoon. So keep an eye out for him. He'll be the handsome man with the giant beard. Uh, but so that'll mean it'll be just me 
next week. So it'll be a little solo podcast for you. We'll talk a little March Madness. We'll talk some news. Uh, before I let you go, quick mention again, the uh, Southside Technology Awards are all closed up, but the North American Trading and Architecture Summit is still very much available April 21st at the Marriott Marquis. In New York, uh, the event is uh, followed by the uh, Cellside Technology uh, Awards, but a bunch of great panelists, a bunch of great panels, definitely worth checking out for sure. So give it a look-see, uh, register, I'll provide the link at the bottom. Also, we are still in the process of hiring a uh, junior reporter here in the New York office, so I'll provide a link, but if you have experience in journalism or experience in finance and you're interested in joining our team, get to hang out with awesome guys like Tony and I, then... Uh, Drop us a resume, let us know, and uh, we'd love to have a look at you. Uh, But other than that, I think that's all. Anthony, do you have anything to add? Nothing. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll uh, be back here next Thursday. Have a good one.